I'm excited today. You know that, right? You really know that I'm excited because we are going back into the New Testament. We have been out for a while and we're going back in the New Testament. And if you would open up your Bibles to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but obviously 1st Thessalonians, we will start with. And did you know? Did you know? These are my favorite books. Did you know this? So I get excited when I'm in my favorite book. And in this week, I have been absolutely excited because this, the topics are absolutely perfect for our time today in the future because we have to set our minds upon what God is, is really revealing in these times. Now, if you forgot your Bible uh, at home, get up, run right now to get your coffee at your refrigerator and grab your Bible and get back to your comfy couch. But for you here, if you forgot your Bible, raise your hand and the, Bible, uh, the usher will make sure you have Bible in hand because we want you to know and to read and to see and underline and whatever you need because I want you to know the Word of God. I want you to understand the Word of God, and I want the Spirit of God to apply it to your life so that you can then implement it, what He's going to show you today by the power of the Holy Spirit. So be open in your minds and ears to hear and hearts to receive what He is about to speak to you about. Because as we take a look at both of these letters in due time, starting with 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that both letters focus on the things of the future. So many people, we, you know, what's going to happen in the future? Well, guess what? <laughs> this is nothing new. The people were wondering what was happening in the future back in these days as well. And we're going to see it applies today for you to understand what God is ready to show us. Because of that focus of the fact that these letters, especially specifically 1st uh, and 2nd Thessalonians, that they focus um, what we call the eschatological epistles or letters, which is about the last days. So these two letters are about the last days of the church age before we go to heaven. So make sure you keep that in mind as you're taking notes. First uh, Thessalonians is all about the Lord's return. It's all about the Lord's return. And it's about the day of Christ. You may have heard of it as that. When you say you hear about the Lord's return, you almost may sometimes hear it as the day of Christ. So that's the same thing we're talking about here. It's also an ephemism of, of the coming of, uh, of his coming for the church or what we refer to as the rapture of the church. So when you hear the Lord's return, the day of Christ, the rapture of your church, we're talking about the same thing here as we look at the scriptures here. And it's the gathering together of his people, the children of God, unto him, to bring them into his presence. That's what we're talking about. And 1 Thessalonians, that's what it's all about. So understand the context and understanding of this letter uh, to the, uh, the Thessalonian believers in Thessalonica. The second Thessalonians, that that letter, is about the Lord's retribution. The first one is about the Lord's uh, return. This one, in the second Thessalonians, will be about the Lord's retribution. And it's also referred to as the day of the Lord, an often used phrase in the scripture, as you know, referring to the period of judgment we call the tribulation. So when we get to that letter, we'll, we'll remind you as we get into that letter what that focus is of that letter so you can see as in, in context as you go through verse by verse uh, through that and chapter by chapter through that little epistle. But Paul wrote both letters to encourage you and I or the Thessalonians 
uh, in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian believers, those young believers in the hope of Christ's return, and to educate them about the nature of the end times that God was teaching, or he was teaching during that time uh, that Jesus was here. Now let us see, in this this first letter, as you study the word, you're looking for the characteristics of what he's trying to teach us. And because it's about the church and it's about the end times, it's about you as a believer in what you should know and understand in the end times, then we will see today what characteristics of the church in Thessalonica was like. It was this, of these characters of this church made it so ideal as an ideal church in the eyes of Paul. We're going to see those characteristics. And why is that important to us today? Because if we want to be the ideal Christian church today, we should look at the patterns, the biblical patterns, we should look at the truths of what the believers were doing in Thessalonica that Paul was saying and praising and praising God for what he was doing in and through this brand new startup of a new church. This is not a church that's been established for hundreds of years. This is a church that was established for three weeks he was there. Three weeks. So keep that in mind as we go through that, and I will remind you. But let us look at these characteristics of how at one time or another you may have heard the saying, where where can we find the perfect church? If, if you, we've seen this happen many times here in the ministry. The military transition, and occasionally people who live locally, but a lot of times it's military, because they're unfortunately having to be moved from place to place every two or three years plus, and they find themselves, when they come into a new community, they don't know the community, they don't know the churches, they, if they've done their due diligence before they go to someplace, they do their research, they listen, because electronics say you can listen to the teachings that are out there, you can read the websites of these people, you can, you can get a sense of what they, their core doctrine and beliefs, but many times people come in and they're like, are you, how'd you find us? Well, we found you on the website. Okay, great. So why did you pick here? Because we read your website, we like your doctrine, it, it sounds solid and it sounds good, and this is I think is what the Lord wants us to say. We're shopping around And I always know they're looking for the perfect church, right? And I always ask you, what are you looking for in a church? Because you always have preconceived ideas of what you think you need in a church for you or for your kids. And I'm always trying to bring you back to the basics. It's not the music. It's not the color of the walls. It's not the entertainment. It's not anything. It is Are you hearing from the Lord teach you his word and is it transforming your life? You hear enough about the news. Why would you want to hear about the news here? You hear about all cultural and social things going on out there. Why would you come here and hear me preach on what's going on in the the news cycle? I'm here to teach you the word of God because that's what he called me to do. That is it. And then the power of the Holy Spirit applies his word to what you are experiencing in your life. And it varies from every single one of you. 
How would I sit there and be able to preach to you and then and over here you think that it's going to apply to you because your lives are completely different? We are so vastly different. I am absolutely amazed by God how he brings such a diverse group of people and all walks of life and all spectrum of life and good and bad and, and fallen and up and down, completely saved for 40 plus years. And someone who says, I'm not sure if I'm saved today. See, and God has a way of bringing us together and through the, his Holy Spirit minister you by the reading and the teaching of the word of God. It's transforming. It transformed my life. I know without a question in my mind, it will transform yours. That's why I know. There's, no, there's complete confidence. There's not a question in my mind. The only question is, will you keep showing up regardless of how you feel? That, that is your, that's your decision. I can't make you. As much as I would like to make you. But anyway, I better get back in focus here. Because I, I mean, this is going to be... It's only 10 verses, so hey, praise the Lord. There's only one chapter, 10 verses. But I can tell you, I can go for a couple hours on just this 10 verses. You know that, right? So, so we take a look at this. When you ask the question, where can you find the perfect church? Well, it's not perfect because I showed up. <laughs> right? The church is made up of you. <laughs> we're, we're human beings, right? Since local churches are made up of human beings saved by the God's grace, no church is perfect. It's not. But some churches are closer to the New Testament ideal Christian church than others. That's true. That's a fact. The Thessalonica was in that category of the ideal church. So let's take a look at why it's an ideal church and, and we will see it through the lives of the people, right? So we see it here in 1 Thessalonians and we take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 and we see the greeting. Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am inspired right now to continue to read all nine verses. So let's go. Normally I don't, but then we'll come back and we'll take verse by verse. So let's keep going. Um, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake." And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all of the Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you and 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Powerful, powerful 10 verses right here. So let's take it verse by verse and, and, and break it down. So for you, I'll try to slow down for those who take notes and give you scriptures a little on the slower side so that you can write them down so you can go back and read this. But notice right in the very beginning of this letter, like all of Paul's epistles, we see that we've, the characters right up front is Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy. So in this very first uh, verse of each and every book of even First and Second Thessalonians identifies P Apostle Paul as the author of this letter. No questions. There's no, pretty much no one debates the authorship of this letter. So we know it's coming from Paul, the apostle. And Paul was an amazing man, an apostle of God, but he usually did not work all by himself as you continue to read his letters. He never was a man who went out on the ministry by himself. He didn't think he was all so perfect and ready and God's going to use him mightily and go out and start a ministry, start a new church by himself. He always worked with others. It was a teamwork effect. And I believe that is true in the scriptures. When God sends someone out to do a new work or start a church, it's always two by two. It's never alone. And that means what the scripture means. I, and that's what... I knew I, we weren't going to start the church up here in 2011. And, and when God had said, it's time to go, he knew, put on my heart who it was going to be. And it was Pastor Rich. And I called him and God was already working on his heart. We got together and we went two by two and we came out here. And I believe it's the same thing. And Paul in his pattern was the same. And whenever he could, Paul teamed up and we see through his letters. But Paul wrote this first letter to the Thessalonians sometime during his second missionary journey, possibly from the city of Corinth when he had to move to Corinth because he was kicked out from the previous cities that he was trying to share the gospel. And that's where, again, we'll see Salvanus, which is another name for Silas, so that's where Silas and Timothy had met Paul up with him. And you'll see that in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians may be the oldest letter that Paul wrote. It could be Galatians was his oldest letter. But many believe that his, this letter right here to the Thessalon, uh, Thessalonian believers... The, was the, the oldest letter uh, at that point in time. It was written somewhere, dating somewhere between A.D. 50 and 51. The second Thessalonians was written shortly after this first one, and that was possibly within a month he wrote that, which would take it maybe into 51 to 52 kind of frame. So in that category of time is when this letter was, these two letters were written. Now, the second character is Salvanus, or also known as Silas. And they came, he came onto the scene, if you remember, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, and has a very long and experienced relationship with Paul. And he traveled with Paul very frequently, as we see in the scripture, especially he traveled with Paul in his second missionary journey and was in prison and set free together with Paul. Not a bonding experience. 
Let's go to prison together, and then we'll be set free, and we'll continue to go do what God's called us to do. It's a very, a very bonding experience kind of a thing going on. I don't highly recommend that, so don't think that's a, a new ministry you should try to go do. But, uh, but you can minister to those who are in prison, but I don't recommend you go into prison. That's for sure. Not willingly. Um, but they were set free, and we saw that when they were in the Philippian jail, and we saw that in chapter, Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 30. When Paul was first came, or first came to Thessalonica here, Silas came with him, Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, and there he, um, Silas, or Salvanius, got to know the people as well. He was right along with Paul, ministering and sharing the gospel and encouraging those brand new to the faith in that, that community. Now, the third person is Timothy, young Timothy, who was a resident of Lystra, if you remember, the city of the providence of Galatia, Acts 16. And he was the son of a Greek father that we saw noted there in Acts 16. But he was, had a Jewish mother, Eunice, and we see that in 2 Timothy 1.5. And from his youth, he was raised up in the scripture by his mother and his grandmother that we see again in 2 Timothy chapter five, or chapter 1, verse 5, also chapter 3, verse 15. And so between a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother, they poured into their that child the scripture. Even though their father was not a believer or a Greek uh, follower, maybe wrapped up into Greek philosophy and Greek idol worship kinds of stuff, but these women were committed to raising their children in a godly way. That is what we're called to do as parents, is to pour into our kids the scripture and allow God to do a good work in their lives so that when they raise up, they will not depart from the truth, won't they? Now, they may go crazy and get wrapped up in some things, but you know they know what they know because you poured into their lives at such a young age or middle age. Wherever it is, it's never too late to be pouring Scripture into the ears and the life of your children. It's an absolute critical ministry as a parent and grandparent. And so when we take a look at this, Timothy, and pour it in there, Timothy was such a trusted companion and associate with Paul, he accompanied Paul, again, on many missionary, missionary journeys, and Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians on a previous occasion, and we saw that, uh, again, as we continue in the First Thessalonians. Now, what about the church of the Thessalonians? Paul himself founded the church in Thessalonica on his second uh, missionary journey, but he was only in the city about a month, just about three weeks, because as he was out there just teaching the truth and teaching what was going to be the greatest thing for these people, uh, that didn't go over well with the people who didn't want to hear anything about God. And they forced him uh, out uh, of that city because he was sharing the gospel, the good news, and the enemy of, the, of, the, of them in that area did not like it. And so the body of believers were still developed there called the church, the Thessalonian church. The believers still, those who would listen, those who were saved, was small, but they were mighty. 
These were committed believers. These were not, I'll take it or leave it, and I don't feel like it, and I've got more important things to do, like wash my cat this week, so I don't feel like going to church. No, no, these were committed believers because they knew that this was a life-changing event in their life when they got saved by hearing of the gospel of God. And so when they take a look at that and you see this church, even though there was enemies and there were people and, and Paul had to, it was kicked out and he had to move on, these believers continued and they, he left this young church and he had, a, as a pastor, I can't imagine just spreading the gospel, people getting saved, week, three weekends in a row and all of a sudden I have to go? I would have this deep, like Paul would have this incredibly deep concern about how are they doing? Are they, are they being fed? Are they continuing the word of God? Are they continuing to fellowship? And because Paul was like that, he, that's why he wrote this, this letter. And the second letter was to find out how the ch young church was doing. Find out and address some of the issues that they were dealing with as a young church. But Paul's secondary missionary journey started, remember, if you remember, it was prior to that, was imprisoned in Philippi and was miraculously freed from jail, only to be kicked out of this city as well. So he went from city to city. Imagine you're out there just doing what God's called you to do, and you're being kicked out from city to city because you're teaching the truth. That's going to save people's lives. And then he came to Thessalonica, this, this prosperous capital, this, this mega center of trade and commerce with the, the uh, 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 Genetian uh, Way. It's a, a main road that ran from Rome all the way to Asia. It was a main thoroughfare. And everyone traveled through this, this main well-known road because that is where commerce started. That is where everything happens. And because of that, people would come there and trade. Then they would disperse out to the world. Imagine what God used right there in Paul, teaching and, and sharing the gospel to these people. And these people, was people were coming into the city to trade and move and going then back out to Rome and Asia in different directions, they were hearing the gospel and it was spreading throughout the known world. God has a way. And he was doing it in a mighty way. So only after three weekends, prosperous, fruitful ministry for Paul, and he had to flee from these, this angry mob, and he moved on to Berea, if you remember, in the scriptures, and he enjoyed a few weeks there in the ministry in Berea, and then he was driven out uh, by that same mob that was following him from Thessalonian mob, was just following him, trying to keep him moving and trying to keep him from having any way. And then he went on to um, Athens. At, onto Athens, and he preached a good sermon there with some mixed results, if you remember, if you study the scriptures there. And he spent some time in Corinth. And if you remember in 1 Corinthians 2-3, we find the Apostle Paul at a point of really a weak point in his, in his ministry because he says, I'm in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So he's out there doing God's work He's being forced, he's being resisted, he's being chased by the mobs, and he comes to a point where he's finding himself in the ministry where he's finding himself so weak and in fear and it's in trembling, but it's at this point of his secondary, uh, second missionary journey that he's seen that Paul 
in this very discouraged point time in ministry that while in Corinth, it's where Paul was so concerned about the churches that he was establishing on his way that he got word that the church, this young church in Thessalonica, was booming. They were solid as can be. Committed to Jesus all the way. They weren't an entertainment center any longer. They're at all. They've never been, never will be. They were never going to be there for some social gathering. They were committed as believers to serve their God and to encourage one another in the faith. And so as we he got word of this Christian, ideal Christian church happening, the great news, it inspired him to, read, to write this letter. The Holy Spirit moved upon him to write this letter to the Thessalonians, and it was his, probably his very first letter to any church that he wrote, and God used it in a mighty way, not only for the people then, but also for us today. But he ends there on the verse 1, like many times, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul brought his customary greeting to the Thessalonian Christians, greeting them with grace and peace of the God the Father. The way of grace. The way of grace. That's why the teaching ministry here is called the way of grace because God had shown me years ago it is all about his grace. Why? Because God's love made Calvary possible. We see that in Romans 5.8. And there is where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins. But it is not God's love that saves the sinner. It is God's grace that saves the sinner. God in His grace gives us what we do not deserve. You don't deserve to be saved. And it's God and his mercy that does not give us what we do deserve. And so when you understand that, Ephesians 2.8 is a great verse for you and I to always meditate and remember. But it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God that he offers to you and I. And we don't deserve that gift. Get Understand that, right? Understand we deserve wrath. But he shows you mercy. We do not deserve to be saved, but he offers you the free gift to receive by faith. So when you take a look and understand that, that is why Paul often opens his letters with grace and peace. Because you'll never experience peace in your life until you first experience what? His grace. Remember the days when you did not have peace in your life? Everything was absolutely almost hopeless. You must receive the grace of God. That free gift of salvation that he offers you. And when you receive him, then he comes in you because he is the prince of peace, right? That's just not a Christmas thing. You know that, right? (laughs) You know that's not just a tagline for Christmas moment? No, you can't talk about fall either. (laughs) We're, We're staying in the summer right now. 
receive the grace of God. And the peace of God will come and it will overflow you beyond your own understanding. Because your, your circumstances haven't changed. You're still in chaos, chaos moment, right? You're dealing with cancer, dealing with a loss, death, loss of a job, whatever it is that's happening in your life. That hasn't changed. But God's peace can fill you afresh to strengthen you for this day that he's given you. Will you trust him? And then what we see here in verse 2, we give thanks to God, always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul says here, we're giving thanks to God. We're so grateful. We're so thankful to God and what he's doing in your life because Paul knew it wasn't him. Paul was there and used for a moment to share the gospel, and then God moved him on through pressure, didn't he? He wasn't there, and these people were still growing. And the, the, it wasn't relying upon him. He wasn't, the, some, he wasn't God, so the pastor is not the person who's going to save, let alone the person who's going to do anything other than be a vessel used by God. But Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. So when Paul thought of the, of the Christians in Thessalonica, his heart filled with gratitude and thankfulness. And Paul started this church less than the, the, the ideal circumstances. He was in there being coming against by a mob to get him out of there. It wasn't a nice little welcome mat when he walked in there and everyone's, oh, we're waiting for you, Paul. It was bad conditions in the city, running them out of town. But the church here was still strong and full of life, and Paul knew that his work was beyond him and his abilities, and that it was the work of God in the lives of the people in that church. And when Paul says we're praying, he mentions it doesn't mean that he was that's on his knees until they're bloody and, and hours and pain and sweating and all that. No, he says, I pray because as every time the Lord puts it in you in my mind, I give thanks and praise. I make a mention in all my prayers to him without ceasing. I'm, I, as we will see, he's constantly bringing them and just, oh Lord, they're just, praise you for what you're doing in their lives. Praise that they're staying focused on you and being you and continue to work uh, and do what you're calling them to do. So he often, he just says, I'm just mentioning of you in my prayers. And, and, it's, and it's not just him. Notice the plurality here. We give thanks, meaning that Silas and Timothy were praying with him for the people as they mentioned them in their prayer time. So they're praying together. It's not about just praying by yourself, but it's also that to praying to where two or more gathered in his name. What happens? He's in the midst of you. Do you see the power of prayer and how important it is that we gather in the morning for prayer? We gather in any time where you're just fellowshipping. Get two or three together and you're praying for a situation because someone just shared they're having difficult times. Oh, cut over here, brother. We've got to pray for him. My brother, he's struggling right now. Let's pray together. That's what we should be doing. That's what God's called us to do. There's power in prayer. But he mentions here 
that he's lifting them up. Verse 3, and remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. In verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So he says here, I'm, as we're lifting up and mentioning you in our prayers to God about you and, and giving thanks and praising you for we're remembering without ceasing what God is doing in your life and what you as a church are doing. You individually, but as a collectively, as a church body of believers, what is happening? We're remembering the work of faith that is happening in your lives there in that church. We're remembering the labor of love that you're doing in that church and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about not just doing projects and all the things that you're just doing because of the sake of doing. You're doing it because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of our God and Father. Because their attitude was right of what they were doing in that church. Their, the purpose and reason why they were doing things in that church was right and good in, eye, in the eyes of their Savior and God the Father. And that's what we want to do in our church. Whatever we do, we want it to be led by God and do what God's called us to do. Not because of some church growth scheme that's out there. Not because all the other churches are doing it. Not because of any other reason, but then God is putting on our hearts to do the work that he's called us to do. And if he hasn't said we'd be still and we'll continue to pray and wait for the Lord to move. We sat here, we didn't go looking. God said it's time to move. Guess what happened? He provided a place. That's pretty clear for you and me. We're going. We're moving. Right? Yes, there's a lot of work ahead of us to get that place to put in a, a nice place for us to go. But we're going because God says it's time to move. <laughs> we're moving. Where the Spirit moves, we move. Eh? Right? So what happens here is that's how Paul lived. But notice here that there are things about the Christians in here in Thessalonica that Paul simply could not forget. He always remembered them and what he remembered about them made him so thankful thankful for those people but notice also in the same time when you read this what he was not right paul's gratitude was not based on um what the people in thessalonica thought of him he wasn't lifting up their his hands and praising god because the people thought of him a certain way why do we know that? Because later on, we're going to see Paul used an entire chapter defending himself and his ministry against the slandering and the false accusations coming from that church. So well, he wasn't giving gratitude and thankful for them because they all loved him and sent him gifts and, and treated him like royalty and bowed down to him when he entered to the town or entered into the, into the and parted ways. Oh, the pastor's coming. Do you see his robe as he flows down through the, in the aisle? No, no, it wasn't that. Paul's gratitude didn't come because the Thessalonian Christians were morally spotless. Like these were perfect little Christians at this place. No, they were not. Why? Because later on, Paul strongly warned them against the failings in regards to sexual impurity that was taking place in their some of their lives. So that didn't make them the ideal church because they were all perfect little Christians. Some of them were morally 
impure. They were struggling in their, in their flesh. And Paul's gratitude didn't come because the Thessalonian Christians were completely accurate in all of their doctrine. Why? Because Paul had to correct some of their wrong ideas through the, throughout the, these letters as well. Because they, got, they started listening to other people and things that got them a little twisted from uh, the cults that were starting up and the, uh, the Jewish legalists and, and, and the Gentile kind of pagan worship kinds of stuff were filtering in and he had to deal with those. So this ideal Christian church that we're talking about wasn't completely sound on the doctrines. It was some things were creeping in and he had to deal with those as well. But what he did praise them, praise God for it was for their work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope in their Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice the three great Christian virtues, those three great evidence of salvation in someone's life, the evidence of faith, love, and hope. Did you notice that? If you did, if in your Bibles, make sure you circle that. Faith, love, and hope. This is the very first time chronologically that Paul's in his writings that this famous triad faith, love, hope is displayed for you and I as Paul's stress is not on these virtues alone, but rather upon their, the, the, the um, fruit that is bearing from those virtues found in the life of these people. Did, let me say that again. People, sometimes you can focus on the faith, love, and hope, but Paul is saying because of what that, those virtues in these, these people's lives in this church, it produced a fruit that is what was praiseworthy. And we'll get to that. He's going to show this here. Because they produced a biblical change in their life. These virtues, these great Evidence of salvation of someone whose life has been born again, has been regenerated, produces a life full of faith, love, and hope, which causes a biblical changed life. Did you catch that? It's very important you understand those words. Because you can sit there and say, oh, I have all the faith you want, and you have all the love you think you have, and you have all this hope you sure try to convince yourself in, but if it's not a biblical change, if you've not been born again, you will not have those true. And those faith, love, and hope can only be produced by who? God in your life. And when that happens, we'll see the evidence of that by what? A changed biblical life. Some people say, oh, I've changed, but it's not biblical. It doesn't line up with the scriptures. Are you with me? So when we see this, we take a look at faith. It must always lead to works. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. A true faith in God will always produce a good work. Why? Because God gives you the desires of those good works. It has been said, we are not saved by faith plus works. That is not faith. It's not faith plus works. But it's by faith that works. If you have a true faith in God, the, the outcome will be a very good work that God will produce through your life. We are saved for good works. If, if one continues to practice 
worshiping, as we will see they, they were previously, if they continue to practice worshiping dead idols, dead things, worldly things, fleshly things, while professing to have faith in a living God, that would bring a question in someone's mind if you're truly saved or not. Because we know in the scriptures you cannot continue to practice sin and be a Christian. You can't. They do not line up. Love is also an evidence of someone who's been saved. The love of God is flowing through our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. We see that Romans 5.5. 5. That is evidence of the, someone who's been saved. We are taught by God to love one another. We will see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. We are taught, we are told, we're commanded to what? Love one another. We are serve Christ because we love him. We do those things because we love him. And it's that labor of love that Paul is noted, as he said in John chapter 14, verse 15, also noted, if you love me, Jesus says, you will what? Keep my commandments. So we know if, if you're saved, if the, in the evidence here and the believers here in Thessalonica, they had first two. They had a faith in God and they had a love for God and for others. Clear evidence of someone being saved. The third one Paul is saying here and praising God for is hope. The third evidence of salvation is a hope, a waiting for Jesus Christ to return. We'll see that in verse 10 here in chapter 1. But as a believer, your focus is so much on your Savior and wanting to be in his presence, you are looking daily for the return of Jesus to come get you. Where would you, what, what does anything in your life right now have more value than being with your Savior of your soul? <laughs> Anyone who's out there teaches, we have time, God's not, Jesus is not coming back. That's from Satan. Oh, you have time. You and, and, and just keep living your life. And when you see things get really, really bad, and when you see the tribulation going on, and at the end of the tribulation, you'll get your life set and right, and then you can focus on the Lord's return. That's when you can focus on that. Warning to you all. You and I, as a believer, what and who and your mind should you not focus on more than anybody else? Yes, over your spouse. I'm sorry. But God is number one in your life. Your spouse is number two. Your children are number three. In that order. You must keep the Lord in your front of your mind all day long, constantly. Lord, maybe perhaps today you come back for me. And what do you want me to do for you today? And how can I praise you and honor you and glorify you today in everything I say and do? If it's not there, my brothers and sisters, I'm praying for you as you continue to show up regardless of how you feel and you stay in the word and you stay in fellowship and you stay in prayer, you're going to mature and grow where Jesus will dominate your mind. It will dominate. 
He will just permeate your life and you will be transforming. I hope you're tracking with me here. Faith, love, and hope are evidence of election. It's evidence of your salvation and it can only come from God. The ideal church here must be composed of elect people. Saved people, those who have been saved by the grace of God. And there's one problem today we see in the church. One problem today is the presence of unbelievers in and among the church family who say they are part of the church but are not written in the Lamb's book of life. People in churches today we want to fill with a bunch of non-believers and their emphasis to bring a bunch of non-believers in the church to think that because they're in the building, somehow they're going to then get saved. Because somehow, get them to the pastor and he'll do his evangelistic message and they all go saved and they'll be rushing the, the stage. And yes, that could be true because the Holy Spirit does that. But he's asking you as a believer to share the gospel outside of this building. To share in those on the streets and in the lines at the grocery stores and your neighbors and those who come into your family and says, I'm having a difficult time. Can I come by and have a cup of coffee? Yes, please. And then that is an opportunity for you as a believer to share with the non-believer the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And then when you lead them to Christ and they surrender the light to Christ or they says, I want to know more about, I want to learn, I want to grow. Yes, bring them to church. I'm not saying don't bring them. But do you know the church is designed for believers? To be fed, to be encouraged. It's a hospital. <laughs> we come here because we got wounded and spotted and dirty and the things of the flesh and the world spots you, man. And we come here to be encouraged and cleansed and encouraged and to refocus our minds on our Lord. Every church member should examine his and her heart to determine whether he or she has truly been born again and belongs to God's elect, God's family, because there should be evidence in time. I'm not saying if you give your life today, that evidence is going to be clear. But you will know with anybody else that 100-pound gorilla that came off your back when you got saved and you just sensed that relief of being forgiven. You know it. That's why we're encouraged to what? Go back and remember your day of salvation because you need all the encouragement you can get knowing he says beloved brethren your election of God by God Paul reminded them that God loved them God loves you do you know you're loved do you know that do you know you're loved embrace it the fact that God loves you that's why he says, beloved brethren. And, and he has chosen them. Remember, you've been chosen by God. You've been elected by God. You're saved. You're a child of God. You must remember this basic thing. Most important thing for your life. And the two go together. When we love someone, we naturally choose them. When you love someone, you will naturally choose them. 
And as you read this letter and you discover this doctrine of the Trinity is so clear, and I'm hoping, and I'm going to spend some time here and the rest of it, I'll go a little bit faster, but I don't want you to miss this, this, this doctrine of Trinity of the, of the Christian belief in one God existing in three persons. We have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. One God in three persons. And we must understand that and keep it in mind that all three persons are involved in your salvation. All three. If you've been tracking on Wednesday nights, if you're not tracking, I encourage you to come here on Wednesday nights because it's only three of us here. But three or four of us. <laughs> so if you want to come here on Wednesday nights, we're here at 6.30 or watch on Facebook. But go back and listen because I'm going through the doc, uh, the dis, uh, discipleship journey and I'm taking you from the beginning of the time of salvation and stepping you through a maturity in a Christian. So if you're not watching, I really encourage you to listen to those teachings. But as we take a look at the Trinity and the fact that understanding that both the, the all three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in your salvation plan. This will help you and I to escape some very dangerous things that are going on in the churches out there today because you will either get caught up in this denying human responsibility in your salvation plan or you will dilute the divine sovereignty of God in the salvation plan. But you and I must understand as we go through verse by verse, teaching chapter by chapter, book by book, you know that both are in the scripture. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Let me give you as simply as I can. I've been pondering on this and I'm going to give you as simply as I can for you to understand how this works. Are you ready? For you taking notes, I'm going to give it to you once here. And I hope this really settles your minds on some things. Because some people still struggle with this. When it comes to the salvation plan for your life, as far as God the Father is concerned... I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the world began. The Heavenly Father chose you because he's all-knowing. He's sovereign. He chose you before the foundation of the world. From, from the God the Father's concern, that has been settled. When it comes as far as, 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 as the Son of God is concerned, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as far as the God, of the, God the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. It was settled. I died for you, Corey, that day. I was on one side of the cross, and you were like you were on the other side of the cross, and I was dying for you. It was completely taken care of on that cross. So from the Son's perspective, God the Son, that all your salvation took place on that cross. And anyone who believes shall be saved. Now, as far as the God, the Holy Spirit is concerned, the Holy Spirit is concerned, is I was saved one very specific day in 1997 when I heard the word of God and I trusted Jesus Christ as my, my Savior. Are you getting it? All three, the Trinity, the Godhead, is all involved in the salvation plan for you. And it's at that moment 
The entire salvation plan fell together and became, I became a child of God. God thought of me before I was in my mother's womb. Jesus Christ had me on his mind when he went on that cross. And the Holy Spirit has been working in my life since my, I was conceived in the womb and been working in my life for the day when I would be saved, which was in 1997. God has not given up on you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, today is when the Holy Spirit says, today is your day of salvation. Why? Because the Father has already planned it. The Son has already died for it. You just now need to make a decision to receive the free gift of salvation for this day to have happened. Are you tracking with me, my brothers and sisters? And don't let anyone else deceive you in any other false teaching that would go contrary to what I just taught you from the Word of God. You must hold that because the Holy Spirit witnessed in my heart in 1997 that I was a child of God. And the Holy Spirit will witness into your heart that you are a child of God or you're not. And when I got saved, I knew without a shadow of a doubt my life was transformed at that moment. I knew, even though it was a roller coaster effect for the next six months to a year of purging out the junk that was in my mind for almost 30 years, and then purging and bringing in all of the truth from the Word of God. And that's, that's that roller coaster that we all were on and that transformation taking place until all of a sudden all these things, I, I don't deal with the things I did over 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? But he's still working in our lives, constantly working and refining us. I should probably move on. And verse 5, the for our, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and as much assurance as you know what kind of men you were among you for your sake. So we see here that the gospel is not a matter of mere words. People can get up there and just teach on a Sunday mere words. But those are just mere words. What we need to have happen, as Paul was saying here, is our gospel did not just come out in word only, but it had power. It's power. God's word is powerful. My words I come up with, I have no power. But God's word has power. The Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the, the word of God has, has power to transform and change your life. If you say you've been a Christian for five years, five minutes, or 50 years, unless you've been reading the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to use that word of God to transform you, you're still a baby Christian, if, if at all. And you must make a day today. You must change the biblical pattern of your life. You must learn to be in the word of God. And you must get into allowing the spirit of God to walk in the spirit and truth. You must practice these things. And you're sitting here going, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. Keep showing up regardless of how you feel. Because God will teach you these things as you go. You just by faith keep coming and keep showing. Keep reading and he will reveal himself greater and greater in power and, 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 and might into your life. And because someone who is saved, one of the evidences, practical evidences, is the fact that we'll see in chapter 2, verse 13, people never 
lose this eagerness for the word of God. I can always have a conversation with someone brand new moving in here, coming in. I was like, I just have to have a little conversation with you. And if I can tell if there's evidence of maturing or if you're a, a child of God that's maturing because you cannot, help, you cannot help but talk about the things of God and what you're reading in the word of God. And you will apply the word of God to a situation that I might present to you. And how you respond to me, if it's out of your own opinion or a world's opinion or some news opinion, no, you will give me what God's word says. He always tells me where you're at. And then what I do is God shows me these things and I say, ah, I need to, I need to, to feed some more scripture to them. I must encourage them to be in the, around the word of God, around godly people who are in the word of God because I need them to, like a, like a baby, take, get nourishment and have a desire for the food, not just milk, but food to nourish themselves. And you become followers of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, we see that Paul says, you have become followers of us. Paul had no problem saying, please follow me. Yes, please, because I know where I, who I follow. I follow Jesus, and I know where he's taking me. Because if you follow me until you can walk on your own, until you can keep your eyes on him, until you can follow and go the direction he wants you to go, I'm okay with you following me because that is biblical. It's called discipleship, right? And I want to disciple you. Follow me because this is where we're going. We're going to be following Jesus. Jesus is coming back for us. And let us stay in the word and let us go in the direction he has. So Paul had no problem. That's another evidence that someone is saved. Not only will they desire for the word of God, but they will follow this biblical pattern that they see in spiritual leaders. They go, that is that pastor, I, that leader, I'm going to follow. I'm going to, I'm going to listen. I'm going to, I'm going to hear. I'm going to take heed of what he's teaching. Because he teaches me the word. He teaches me what to, what, how to live life as a Christian. That's why Paul's in understanding in the scriptures is so clearly noted here that it's, he understands that elements of personal discipleship of one another and how important it is. And Paul repeated the same kind of a theme multiple times. We see in Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Those are powerful words. If you need encouragement and you need help in your walk, Philippians 3.17. 3.17. You must. Even in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Imitate me, he says. Just as I also, what? Imitate Christ. He knew who he was focusing on. I'm imitating Christ. And if you're imitating me, you're going to ultimately imitate who? Christ. not complicated is it <laughs> not easy but it's very simple but you have to do the work you have to choose so it's important here these young christians at paul is saying and also we see in the scriptures it's so important and it's a way of satan is really working hard to really get people to especially young christians to to Continue to respect spiritual leadership. Used to be pastors were very highly respected and people really valued what a pastor said. 
because there are so many bad examples of pastors out there that are not imitating Christ, you, Satan just uses it as a field day to say, are you gonna, oh, that's who you're going to follow? Did you watch this person? Did you see this on the news? But young Christians are old Christians. They must respect spiritual leadership and learn from mature believers. Why? Because the scripture even says who it's supposed to be. Because just like a newborn baby needs a family, so a newborn Christian needs a local church and the spiritual leaders to help feed them until they get strong. And what scripture am I basing that on? You all know it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I bet you some of you are like, oh, I don't think I know that verse. Go back and read it today. It's not a if or I'll think about it. It's actually a commandment. Hebrews 13, 17. So not only do you know of evidence of the fact that they love the word of God, they, 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 they will not give up the word of God, they, and they want to follow this biblical pattern of spiritual leaders. They're wanting to follow those good examples. They want to be around good spiritual leaders. But thirdly, faith is always tested. We see Paul says they've received the word in much affliction. Their faith is not swayed by the persecution and the testing that they find themselves in. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm on fire for God. I want to do whatever you can do for God. And all of a sudden they get a sniffle. Uh-oh, I, I, I'll see you in a few months because I'm really not feeling well. Hello? But you go out and do whatever else for the next few months? A few rounds on the golf course? You know, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying, where's your priorities? Your faith will drive you even enduring persecutions and testings that come your way. It will not sway your faith in who you follow. That's a strong indication of someone who is saved. And not only will you be doing it and continue to do it by faith, but notice that with joy of the Holy Spirit, meaning you're not going to face these times of affliction and go, oh, I'm going to follow, I'm going to keep my faith going. And don't do it in this passive, um, negative acceptance of the things that are going on. You should be filled with joy with the fact that God is with you through these times of persecutions and with great joy because you know he's going to walk you right straight through it. And then verse 7, And so that you become examples to all in the Macedonian and Achaia who believed they were not only living for them, trying to grow and mature, these Christians in an ideal church, ideal Christian church, the fourth evidence is that these Christians were so encouraging not discouraging. Christians can be encouraging and discouraging. You know that. But, but we want to be encouraging. Churches can be this so encouraging to others in the church. But do you know what Paul is saying here? These Christians in this church, this Thessalonian church, was absolutely encouraging to other churches in Macedonia and Achaia. So we want to be that, do we not? Do we not want to be encouraging as a church so that other churches in this community and others, seeing what God is doing in our lives and doing what's going, be encouraging to them and what God could do in their church? We need to be that example. And then finish up here, 8 through 10. For you 
from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Sounded forth, it means, it's a very bold um, word here in the Greek. It means like a trumpet blowing. It was like, oh, you know, the soft melody. No, no, it was blasting. So everyone heard them. They were so bold in their sharing of the gospel. They were bold in living their life for Christ that it was like a trumpet sounding out into the community. That is the way we're supposed to be, my brothers and sisters. You cannot put your light under a basket. You must beam, of the, let the Lord beam through your life. You must be transparent. You must be like a sounding, not of a brass clanging cymbals, but a beautiful sound of God working in and through your life so that people can see your life and go, I want that. I want that in my life. And it's not just right there in their little community, but it permeated out into the known world of Macedonia and Acadia. But also in every place, every place that they were going, that God was sending. Remember, it was a made trade thing. They were going all the way from Rome to Asia, and they wanted to be a beacon of light wherever they went. Your faith toward God has gone out, he says. Your faith has gone out. It's, just, it's not just, I live my faith on Sundays and only here. And then when I leave the building, I don't tell anyone that I'm a Christian. That's not how it's supposed to work. An ideal church, you and I are to go out. I mean, it's evident that you're a child of God. It's evident. There's no question. And what he says so that we did not even need to say anything. Paul's like, you guys are out there doing such a great job sharing the gospel and being a beacon of light. We have nothing to do. Here I am. I'm supposed to be out there. I have nothing to do. You're, every time I turn around, people are saying, oh, yeah, we've heard the gospel. Oh, yeah, we've heard the gospel. Hey, can I tell you about the gospel? Oh, yeah, I just heard from someone. And Oh, really? Oh, great. That's praise God. So um, as we have waiting in the line, who, who, do you know where they went to church? Oh, Calvary Chapel. Oh, you Calvary Chapel, and this is where they're located. Everywhere they should turn around, they should say, oh, yes, I met someone from Calvary Chapel. Oh, yeah, I, I work with that person at Calvary Chapel. Oh, they're the sweetest and nicest people. And oh, yeah, they'll tell you about Jesus in a heartbeat. That's what we should be doing. That's what Paul is saying. This is the ideal church. It's what he's praising God for. That's what's going on in their lives. For, in verse 9, For then the cells declared concerning us what matter of entry you had to you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living God. Notice this. Here it is. Make note. Verse 3. Matched with now verse 9, 10. Faith, hope, love. Those are beautiful virtues. But if they do not change a person's life, what are they valued at? Notice here, they had a change in life. Notice that faith, hope, and love, right there in verses 9, 10. What happened? They turned away from idols, and they started to serve the living and true God. Do you know if, God, if you're saved, you'll see faith, hope, and love. But if you see a regenerating, born-again life, you will see that they no longer do the sin that they used to do. They no longer follow the idols. And not only do they no longer don't follow the idols, but notice they actually now give or to serve the living and true God. They're actually doing something for God. And to wait for his son from heaven. That's the third item. 
you're no longer about their little world and creating their little world and meeting their 10, ten things in their bucket list. It's not their top priority anymore. Achieving corporate ladder climbs and all these other things that the world can really, you know, we, I, I'm going to, you know, there's so many things that we can pursue in our flesh and corporately good, good things. I'm not saying it's good things. I'm always reminded, Mark Phillip, exercise profits you little. <laughs> to remind him, where's your priority, man? Some people do it chasing money. Some people just chase relationships. Other, what we need to understand is we need to pursue Jesus Christ. And that's why right here, to wait for his son from heaven. Their emphasis was on what God had for them in the future of being with his presence. And the things of this world did not have a grip on them like many do. Who he raised from dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we will get into more of that. We're over time right now, but we will get into more of that as we continue of the fact that Jesus who delivers us or rescues us from the wrath to come. Because Paul points this, the absolute essence of salvation is saying Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. We are a church. And I'll summarize this. We are a church. This means that if you have these spiritual characteristics that Paul just outlined of the Thessalonian church, then our church will become what God wants us to become. If we allow God to work in our lives individually and as corporately as a church body, we will become what God wants us to become. That will glorify him and please him. And the result will be that winning of the lost to him, leading people to him, and it will also glorify our Lord in the process. And that's why every church, every church should be what every Christian should be. What are those? We see today we need to be elect, meaning born again. We need to be an example. We must be imitating the right people who are imitating Christ. Thirdly, we must be energized to share the good news, the gospel, with others who have no hope. And the last thing we saw today is we should have an expectancy. We should be expecting daily looking for Jesus Christ to return to take us home. When we have that boiled down in simplicity as that, then we will be the ideal Christian church. Amen?